The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. Hey, why didn't you tell me the new issue of Weird was here? <laughs> I love their hilarious send-ups of hit movies. Dad, it's not... Gigabytes! <laughs> yeah, they've done it again. Gigabytes. Wait, this isn't weird. Why, there's no magazine called Weird, is there? This is Wired. It's about computers and technology. Hey, look, there's a cyber cafe opening right here in Springfield. Will you take me, Dad, please? I'll show you how to order pizza over the Internet. The Internet? Is that thing still around? I know a website that shows monkeys doing it. Bart, the Internet is more than a global pornography network. It's a... Come on, Lisa! Monkeys! Welcome to another episode of HTM Tech, brought to you by the HTM Podcast Network, also in association with Microplay in Bradford, Ontario, Canada. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching at the HTM Tech Pod. To listen to the podcast, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, and all those other podcasters out there as well. As always, I am Big Joe. And I'm Mighty Mike. All right, Mike, another week has come and gone in the world of technology Let's start off with a bit of a doozy here. We are talking YouTube censorship. This is a a pretty hot button issue and there's a lot to kind of get to with this. So why don't you kind of get us, uh, get the ball rolling here. Thanks, Joe. So this story is catching fire among alternative news sites. You you won't hear much about it on mainstream media, of course, because this is a continuation and a, kind of a summation of things I was talking about on my previous podcast, London Rising, back in the summer. Uh, if you So if you go back, and I'm sure, Joe, you remember this, I back oh. in around, I think it was June or July, Project Veritas, a major sting operation site run by James O'Keefe that's famous for exposing a lot of corruption, especially in big tech as of late, got privy to some some information within Google about manipulated algorithms in relation to election meddling. Mm-hmm. specifically a concept called machine learning fairness, which we'll touch upon soon. But getting back to what's hot in the news, this uh, came out on December 1st, 2019, CBS News. The article, How Does YouTube Handle the Site's Misinformation, Conspiracy Theories, and Hate? And it contains the now infamous 60 Minutes interview between Leslie Stahl and uh, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube. Yeah, let's l- listen to that clip before we get to kind of more into this here. And just to set this up before you play yeah. this, Joe, so they're talking about Wojcicki's responsibility in relation to censorship and promoting, you know, proper authoritative videos. And what they were talking about prior to this clip was when the Christchurch massacre happened in the New Zealand mosque, when the shooter live streamed the massacre for 18 minutes straight, Jesus. video got re-uploaded many many times on youtube caused a whole controversy so yeah let's play the clip and we'll we'll get into uh, what's happening here the law under 230 does not hold you responsible for user generated content but in that you recommend things sometimes a thousand times sometimes five thousand times shouldn't you be held responsible for that material because you recommend it well, our, our systems wouldn't work without recommending. And so I'm not saying don't recommend. I'm just saying be, be responsible for when you recommend so many times. If we were held liable for every single piece of content that we recommended, we would have to review it. That would mean there'd be a much smaller set of information that people would be finding much, much smaller. She told us that earlier this year, YouTube started reprogramming its algorithms in the U.S., to recommend questionable videos much less and point users who search for that kind of material to authoritative sources like news clips. With these changes, Wojcicki says they have cut down the amount of time Americans watch controversial content by 70%. Would you be able to say to the public, we are confident we can police our site? 
YouTube is always going to be different than something like traditional media, where every single piece of content is produced and reviewed. We have an open platform, but I know I can make it better. And that's why I'm here. So just right off the bat there, uh, Mike, before we kind of delve into the, even just that last little bit there with her saying that, uh, you know, unlike other forms of media on YouTube, every piece of content is produced and reviewed. This is like this in every form of media, television, movies, music. Of course, everything is produced and it's reviewed to make sure it's not stupid or that it's not, oh, it just, it's uh, some of that stuff. It just, it boggles my mind that some of these people hire up like this. It just, it's, they just, they're not in the same plane of existence as the rest of us. Joe, I could almost sense her trembling during this interview, and I, I don't understand yeah. why. I mean, Leslie Stahl yeah. represents a dying media, and you can see it here. It, it's almost it's, it's almost as if the, sto- the stern old dinosaur is lecturing her, saying, mm. you need to censor more content because basically it's our competition, and we're getting old, and we're dying out, and we're afraid. That's essentially what I, I'm getting from this. And when they talk about we we you need to do better on your recommendation system to steer – viewers of conspiracy content towards more authoritative sources well what are those authoritative sources they're the usual suspects the cnn's the msnbc's the mainstream media what they considered authoritative so so to what you're saying joe in terms of production and monitoring first of all youtube is an open platform it's almost impossible for a human team of human beings to monitor every single piece of content that comes on there that would go against what these other traditional curated platforms are. And then of course, you know, she does hint at machine learning fairness to come in and help in with the situation. And that just opens up a whole new can of worms right there. And we saw how messed up that was. Uh, I think I was on maybe our first or second episode. I mentioned uh, one YouTuber, uh, Markiplier. He was doing a, a stream, and he had his um, his followers re- um, re- responding and kind of spamming the chat with emojis. And then not only did they, those people get pulled from the stream, you know, their Google accounts were getting banned. And it's just it's like really we're we're entrusting the, these people to to actually say what's and I understand you know because we're getting into like the whole freedom of speech kind of debate here with this. And obviously, you know, common sense, you know, you know, certain things shouldn't really be out there. But at the same time, you know, we need to have differing opinions. Obviously, at the same time, we don't want people blowing each other's heads off on, on YouTube. We don't want to be seeing that either. Right. So, again, common sense should prevail in this situation. But it's it's a really weird kind of situation that we've got going on here with all this all this stuff. Yeah, I'd say we can we can pretty much. OK, let, let's talk about hate speech, because that's a very broad term. Yeah. Or, or violence or anything like that. Okay, so was, for example, like you were saying, people openly murdering each other on the platform mm-hmm. or rape or, or actual assault or, or, or real threats. Yeah, definitely there's no place for that. But when it comes to differing political opinions, that's where that's gotten absorbed, this whole di- debate over, over hate speech. And, and I've said this over and over who is the judge, jury, and executioner on this subject? Who gets to decide what hate speech is? Well, it's the left-leaning Silicon Valley heads who mm-hmm. typically are overly progressive liberals, and, and that that and when I I, I see you want to make a point here, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was some of the material that you sent over to me too. There was one that I really really found interesting, and it was um, they were it was part of this interview as well. Where they were playing it was a documentary on Hitler, and the name of the uh, the, the channel I think had the, the numbers fourteen eighteen on that. And the guy didn't really understand kind of what was going on with that. He did do uh, he posted a later video and said that that actually stood for the letters I guess for Adolf Hitler or something like that. And but essentially what YouTube is saying that it's not the issue with the the video that's the problem it's the name of the the channel that was actually causing the issue so if you were to change the name of your channel to super fun happy time it's perfectly okay to post documentaries about Adolf hitler and even then nope you're i'll even take you one step further joe because this actually happened where an actual teacher had his whole channel scrubbed World War II historian because he was showing videos of Nazis in historical content because everything's about Hitler now. Everything's about Nazis. We're all everything's about white supremacists now. That's the new great boogeyman, the 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 big bad guy that we all have to fight now. There's no other problems other than white supremacy and everything deriving from Hitler. So yeah, Joe, we're 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 memory holding actual history based on numerology. 
And, and that, that's a major problem. And this is getting into his historical discussion here. When it comes to this stuff, we need to occasionally, you know, we need to teach people about this kind of stuff and kind of reflect on it. Otherwise, if you forget history, then you are doomed to repeat it. Right. So yes. that's a very famous expression. And it, it, this is the kind of thing, obviously, no, no I'm not going to sit and watch this on a regular basis and, and get entertainment value out of it. It's educational. And we need to, you know, this, this newer generation needs to kind of learn some of the mistakes that were, were done so that we don't repeat them again. 100%. When, you, when, when chapters in Indigo are banning Mein Kampf, from their bookstores. Well, guess what? Yeah. That's a way of getting inside Hitler's head For and sure. understanding the madness that perpetrated all these horrors. So it doesn't surprise me then that when people forget their history, we get groups like Antifa yeah. who are going out there saying that they're fighting fascists yet using fascist tactics because ding dong, you don't know your history and you don't even know what fascism is because it's not even there for you to study anymore. So yeah, that's the whole irony of the situation. The big thing for me, Joe, is this machine learning fairness. And I, and I want to mm -hmm. briefly explain this for viewers because who may not have been privy to my previous episode of London Rising where I broke it down. So let's go, let's go back to the summer here. Yeah. I did mention Project Veritas. What happened was before this video dropped, about two weeks prior, what James O'Keefe is famous for and his, and his uh, undercover journalists is that They'll get in bed with these major firms for about maybe two years or so as, as undercover operatives. And then when the timing is right, yeah, they'll usually go to a bar. Because why? Because when you record somebody in a bar secretly, you're actually protected because you're in a public space. So because, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. You could be filmed without your knowledge and that's that's legal. Right. And and the key is, is that they'll usually go to a situation involving alcohol. Right. So once you get a few drinks into these these yeah. arrogant people, they'll start. Eh, spilling their guts a little bit. And they actually managed to get Jen Janai, who was the head of, let's see here, they, I think the head of innovation at Google, yeah. aka head of censorship. And she admitted that after the 2016 election, when Donald Trump won, that they were they were so butthurt in Silicon Valley that they actually had to go and change their search algorithm in conjunction with this new concept called machine learning fairness. Quote Jen Janai, she want they wanted to prevent another Trump situation from mm -hmm. happening in 2020. Now, I'm a Trump supporter or whatever, but this has nothing to do whether you, whether you hate or like Trump. This yeah. has to do with actual democracy and people allowing to vote the way they want to and to get access to the information they want to. So when you actually have the world's largest search engine defining what we're allowed to see, mm -hmm. according to machine learning fairness, that, that just stinks, Joe, because now this, this, is, this is authoritarianism. And just quickly before I pass this back to you, machine learning fairness essentially was an algorithm developed to make the world the way Google wants it to be. So for example, let's say um, you're looking up female CEOs, okay? Yeah. And you're not finding a lot of information. Well, the algorithm would force you to find more results to make you think that there are more than those that there aren't. So they're essentially taking a social justice rubric and redefining how we search for information to only find certain pieces of information that fit into a certain very left-wing, very progressive worldview. And what was interesting, too, in uh, going through the information that you had sent over to me this past week here, the um, Sundar Pichai, the uh, CEO of Google, in front of the uh, members of Congress, that was uh, pretty interesting, too. And, and just watching it, too, and, and to be fair, too, uh, some of the guys asking questions, asking them probably in the dickest kind of ways, if that's even an expression, um, you, you know, kind of kind of baiting him into certain responses. But I, I understand that, that approach, too. At the same time, you could tell Sundar was uh, uh, uncomfortable in his own skin. Um, but I, to be fair, again, too, I think anybody in that situation would have been kind of uh, very nervous, especially if you're involved with that company. And in this case, being the CEO of uh, not only uh, Google, but... Um, the parent company now as well. So Yeah, when you're dealing with hawkish neocon re Republicans, yeah, it definitely can be a little tough. But at the end of the day, Joe, he lied to Congress under oath. He, it's out of his mouth. You, you, um, you guys, let me just see. If you want to just see it for yourselves, yep. the link, let me see here. It was it was on YouTube. Yep. And just look up Google. Just look up Sundar Pichai testifies to Congress. He says, Google does not discriminate politically. And 
about a month later, the Project Veritas videos dropped and said, yeah, you guys do. You yeah. openly discriminate politically against uh, conservative views. So, Sundar Pichai now, Joe, other news this week, let's just connect this right now, is now the head of both Google and Alphabet. Alphabet, yep. That just dropped this week. So now Larry Page and Sergey Brennoff stepped down, the original founders of Google. Sundar yeah. Pichai is now in control of the whole thing. And the timing is very suspect, too, because both guys pieced out at the exact same time, essentially. And, um, yeah, they, I, I won't say it's like a sinking ship and they wanted to vacate the premises as soon as possible, but maybe they saw something that they didn't like and they said, you know, let's take our billions of dollars and, for lack of a better term, let's get the fuck out of here. It's true. It's true because, you know, we've been talking about the antitrust stuff, all the heat that's coming, what, what's what's going to happen with – they talked about Section 230 yeah. in that clip. And again, if, if you're not – if the view, the audience isn't familiar with 230, that's the section of the Communications Decency Act, which essentially protects platforms, quote-unquote platforms <laughs> like YouTube, Facebook, exam, as, as from liability from user-generated content. Yeah. And for me, I've always said, well – if you're going to be protected under 230, then if you're, if you're, if you're listed as a platform, then why are you acting as a publisher? Why are you starting to curate content and decide what is considered proper speech? and What's hate speech. I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. But here's the thing, Joe, I historically have called for the repealing of 230. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm starting to backtrack a little bit because I see how these authoritarians have co-opted that idea. They're also saying the same thing. Oh yeah, we need to get rid of 230. But insofar as only that it will allow them to further control the narrative and punish platforms right. like YouTube for, go- for, for basically elevating other- anything other than progressive left-wing views, which we already saw too recently with Sasha Baron Cohen going in front of the Anti-Defamation League and saying, Mark Zuckerberg, you will go to jail if you don't start censoring Alex Jones and Breitbart. <laughs> oh, here we go. Hollywood's yeah. telling us what how to think now too, okay? And yeah. and and just it's it's mind-blowing how they're not even hiding it anymore, Joe. They're just being open about their tyranny now and and she said something, "Oh, we we cut down 70% of traffic to these controversial videos." Yeah, mm-hmm. guess what, darling? That 70% went to other sites like BitChute. Yeah. And Brighton that still actually have a free speech platform. So, huh, I don't know. I don't know if, if YouTube can be fixed at this point. And can it? Yeah, and another issue, too, and this, again, was uh, coming from the material that you had uh, sent me here doing the research, and uh, it was a video posted actually by uh, YouTube breaking down kind of how they're basically how you have to set up your channel now. Basically, you have to either at a channel level or at a video level uh, make a clear distinction if your content is safe for children or whether it is for just essentially everybody else. And essentially, if you kind of step out of line, uh, your channel can be demonetized or you know certain penalties can come onto you. Um, and even there was, um, I forget the guy's name now, but due to the subject matter, they almost posed him as like an actual threat uh, to public safety and whatnot. And that's a real stretch, uh, especially if you can't prove it. But I mean, th- this is something that is definitely troublesome for for YouTube creators. Because I mean, uh, up until fairly recently, this has been a pretty open platform where you can kind of say what you want, again, within reason, common sense. But yeah, th- th- this is something that, again, it's like, okay, so what exactly... Another issue with this too is this video isn't really that readily available. You got kind of kind of search for it. I'm glad that you came across it to it. And it's the type of thing too that every YouTube creator this should have been something sent to like their their inbox or their or something so that everybody had access to so that everybody knows that they're on the same playing field. Because I can guarantee you that there's probably some YouTube creators out there that haven't even seen this yet and aren't necessarily aware of the policies. What you're referring to, Joe, and and, and espe- this I came about this actually from watching video game channels, and this is especially. I'm glad you brought this up because there's a great couple great tie-ins. This about video gaming on YouTube, which yeah. is going to be majorly affected here. This is the COPPA lawsuit, C O P P A, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. There was a 170 million dollar lawsuit. Yeah. It was about targeted advertising towards children and, yeah. and comment sections, and about the the safety of the children, which YouTube is just so concerned about. Especially when I get into this next article. Yeah. So what you're talking about now, essentially. Um, 
you're going to have to define whether your content is good for children or not. And if it's not, then it's, I think the, there's not going to be any data collection or anything or any targeted ads, Mm -hmm. but that's such a, that's such a, a vague terminology. It's, it's, it's so vague. Like everything that was said in that 60 minutes interview where I just kind of see Wojcicki kind of spinning in her tracks, trying to please her, her base that created the platform that is successful today versus the authoritarian dinosaurs that are wagging their fingers in her face saying, no, you got to fix your platform because it's affecting our bottom line. So they're just creating these policies that, that can be openly interpreted. And I think is going to backfire in the end. So think about a video gaming channel. How do you define what content is for kids anymore? Especially, what was it like? The, like a couple days after this sixty minutes video dropped. Oh, this is fantastic! Oh, let's let's read this one. This was on The Verge, December second, just the day after YouTube's new gaming policy will allow creators to produce more violent footage without age restrictions. Okay. Hmm. This is I'm confused. Me too, because this is interesting. Because you know, I both have experience in this platform. Because we used to uh, do a YouTube gaming channel, and, and up until we were before we stopped doing it, our, our kind of biggest concern was copyright claiming. Uh, you know, when it came to using footage, especially uh, with our good friends over at Nintendo, uh, notoriously. <laughs> and uh, when it comes to music with fair use uh, and whatnot, this is um, that was kind of our biggest concern at that point. Now. Oof, I mean, it's going to be so, you're going to be, it's going to be like walking on eggshells, running, okay, is the content that I'm producing going to even be worthwhile? Is it going to, ugh. It's just this, this, this hypocrisy double standard. Oh, we're trying to protect the children, but yet we're going to allow them to see even more violent video game footage now. Oh. But, uh-oh, but uh, Paul Joseph Watson and Alex Jones are a no-no. And Steven Crowder, oh, we got to demonetize him. And, oh, Tim Pool, oh, we need to demonetize him. He's not acting like a like a proper left wing journalist. He he's he's just a little too he's just a little too unbiased for our platform. We need to punish him and force him to get. And, and it's so funny with the censorship, Joe. I actually talked about this a while back though. When Stephen Crowder of Louder with Crowder, very popular with the kids, very conservative. When yeah. they started demonetizing his videos, they thought that they were gonna you know basically put the nail in the coffin. All that ended up doing was forcing more people out of spite to go and subscribe to his website where he actually tripled his traffic. It's called the Streisand effect, you authoritarian yeah. pieces of garbage. When you tell people not to go to something, they're going to go more. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's it's like telling a child, hey, don't go do and do this. They're going to go and do it anyways. My Ugh. God. So, yeah, yeah. Joe, I, I, I... It's really I, the again, new... I'm a big fan of YouTube. I spent yeah. a lot of time there. Me too, but, yeah. And like I said, it's it's... Up until now, I thought, okay, well, I still use it for my gaming channels. News, I go elsewhere now. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't. Other mainstream news, I go to Brighton, I go to uh, BitChute, wherever it has it. But even with gaming now, with these new policies, you've got these famous gaming channels saying, like, I think my channel's over now because I don't know how to define. Because I have, I have young people who watch this, I have older people who watch this. Now I have to clearly define my content and yeah. possibly cut out half my audience. It's 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 ludicrous because these creators. It's all this whole the success of this platform all depends on advertising revenue. Yeah, and what what they're claiming on the left is that oh, advertisers are getting skittish because of all this conspiracy theory content, so we're losing money. But at the same time, you're pulling the rug out of your best producers to the point where you're not going to have any advertisers at all. And I keep thinking about PewDiePie, Joe, Mm -hmm. who who the establishment is going after hardcore right now. They're trying to out him. Like they're trying to expose him as a racist. And all of a sudden he's the, he is YouTube. He's the biggest guy on there. I'm telling you, Joe, if he leaves YouTube, I don't know what's left after that, man. Seriously. Yeah. It'll definitely be significant. This is really kind of the new uh, hot button issue in technology for, the, for a good portion of not that long ago, I mean, it was a whole, the whole net neutrality thing, and I'm sure we're not totally out of the out of the the clear when it comes to that situation either. That that that's again was a real issue, and a lot of people spoke out uh, about that. And I know you had made mention of it uh, as well. That uh, I mean, and then that's a real issue too that I think could still kind of creep up on us again too. It's again, you got we got to watch these terms they keep throwing out there, Joe, because. Like with net neutrality, it's it's being posed as this whole idea of making the net equal and fair to all. But then when you really look behind the subtext of who's saying these things and yeah. what they represent, no, it's only equal and fair to all as it 
works under a certain political ideology. You got to read between the lines of this language. And we got into this last week with Tim Berners-Lee coming up with this contract for the web, which sounds pretty docile on paper. But then when you actually start to read between the lines and see who's involved with it, this is really just another means of, of reshaping the Internet as, as these people see it and, and getting certain voices out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that all kind of unfolds. Uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on it uh, as time kind of goes by. Absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, let's step away from that. I'm sure that that's a topic we're going to end up revisiting as more kind of happens, but let's talk about some gaming stuff. We, we had hinted at it. Let's talk about delayed video games. This is actually something that uh, people have been kind of asking me about recently and uh, wanted to kind of hear our opinions on this. And this is something that it's not cut and dry and it's not the same situation that always kind of happens. Uh, probably the most notorious one that people are aware of would either be the Duke Nukem Forever and Aliens Colonial Marines was also the other one where basically they essentially lied to us about uh, what was coming out. No Man's Sky is another one uh, where it was uh, delayed and what they put out was essentially... Uh, a big giant bowl of crap. So, although it was a very, very shallow bowl of crap, uh, wasn't that big uh, to actually be to begin with there. But um, game games get delayed for numerous reasons. Um, probably one of the biggest ones that I think people tend to kind of overlook, and when it comes to development, is when they get to about their ninety percent done stage and get to that last ten percent where you're getting ready to wrap up, making sure that everything's done. When you got to start adding credits and music and wrapping things up. For whatever reason, that that last kind of ten percent seems to be what causes some of the delays. Sometimes the last ten percent takes up ninety percent of the time. Mm-hmm. You're fixing bugs. You're you're go you're finding out maybe your certain mechanics didn't work. And it was funny too, Joe, when you were when you were listing those initial games. The first two you mentioned, they're both attributed to the same company, Gearbox. Gearbox. Yeah, yeah. it was the infamous Gearbox. That uh, yeah, I think they get more credit than they deserve, Joe. To be honest, but anyway, yeah, you're right. Um, there is. Uh, there are a lot of reasons games get developed and typically the ones that make the list are the ones that are bad, right? Mm-hmm. That just went through development hell. You talked about the worst offender be Duke Nukem forever, which yes. I think was in development for about seven, eight, maybe more years it was longer. through different developers. That was first announced in the, in the mid to late nineties, Mike. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just, so that, just, that was around for like 20 plus years. And what was funny, too, is what people were saying is that on paper, this probably wouldn't have been a bad game if it had come out in the right generation. But by the time it came out, Way too it late. was just too old and stale. Yeah. Kind of like what I was saying last week about The Last Guardian, the, the overhyped yeah. uh, game successor to Shadow of the Colossus and Eco, which just went through development hell, was supposed to be this killer app on the PS3, yeah. ended up coming on PS4, just felt completely unfinished, just very lax but there's a lot more to that joe there's 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 also good delays too so maybe i'll i'll pass you this one before i get into some of mine what are some good some examples of a good delay i I think i might be thinking of similar ones to you so again i apologize if i'm thinking of the same we'll go back and forth rockstar games is uh notorious i won't say notorious isn't the proper term but they they tend to kind of push their games back a little bit for good reason we we look at some of the the top ones uh, that i I know for a fact i've been delayed la noir Red Dead Redemption. Uh, Red Dead 2, I think, was delayed a little bit. I believe yep. Grand Theft Auto uh, 5 was delayed a little bit as well. This was purely to polish and make the game uh, as best as they possibly can before they stamp their, their name on it. To, to make a bit of a... To, to kind of rewind us back in time of how game development used to be, especially with the Nintendo platform, if you look at a lot of the... Especially the original Nintendo games on the box or on, on the sleeve, you would see the Nintendo brand seal of approval or excellence or whatever whatever they called it. Quality, yeah. Seal Basically, quality. if they were going to put their name on it, they wanted to make sure that it was the best that it could possibly be. Over the last while, that that quality has dipped in quite a few, um, in quite a few different ways. A number of different platforms and manufacturers and developers and whatnot have put a lot of crap out there, just purely because they just didn't take the time to really kind of polish it. Yeah, and Joe, what you were talking about, the seal of quality, just historically, why did that come about? The great video game crash of 1983, where video gaming as a hobby, as a yeah. genre itself, almost disappeared. It, why? Crapware. Too mm-hmm. much. Especially in the Atari age, you had 
Purina dog chow making games and you know, <laughs> you'd see you'd see that again in the the Nintendo Wii era of course you know that was but yeah that's why the seal quality came out because essentially the video game industry was almost destroyed it wasn't taken very seriously yeah. it was still considered a toy and Nintendo came through and revolutionized all that you got to remember too back then Joe is that they didn't have firmware updates they didn't have patches so what you got was what you got you got one chance to get it right and that mm -hmm. was it right now We've been spoiled with early access, with betas, with with uh, persistent universes. You mentioned No Man's Sky. Mm -hmm. Definitely overhyped. I think way too overambitious for what they promised. But I, I haven't personally played it, but I hear now it has actually gotten better yeah. over time. It's starting to get closer to what they've realized, albeit several years later. And and there's there's other titles that you could you could make that case for. So Will we ever get to another crash? This question also came up many mm. times. No, it's not going to happen. Mm. I think video games as a as an entertainment medium are too embedded in our culture. Yes, we're surrounded by crapper all the time. There's 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 so many bad games coming out every day on Steam, on PlayStation Network. I, I used to be, uh, you know, come on, Joe. I was all about the indie revolution several yeah, years yeah. back, and now I'm kind of eating my words a little bit. <laughs> now I almost think that you've got to be careful what you wish for. I mean, it's great to see that video game making has become democratized. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's not a lot of quality control, and it's it's overwhelming. There's just so much out there. So. With Rockstar, mm -hmm. I love the fact they take their time. They are auteurs, and that is yeah. why Grand Theft Auto V is the cultural behemoth that it is. What, it made a billion dollars in 48 hours? At least, yeah. It's still on top 10 lists six years later. That's unreal. And that's because they take the time. They don't, they don't, have, they don't rush out their product. Mm -hmm. They're not annualized like Assassin's Creed used to be, for example, where you, we obviously saw a major dip in quality yeah. until they finally started getting out of that whole annualized thing. Sports Call games. of Duty kind of suffered the same malaise. Sports games, uh, especially the EA Sports uh, franchises, uh, most notably, you know, getting into the this newer generation with uh, NHL and uh, Madden, they have kind of gotten a little bit better. NHL, maybe not so much. The the Madden games of the last couple of years have gotten a little bit uh, better. On the flip side, too, something to, to not ignore about this, there are some games out there, and I can think of at least two off the top of my head that are kind of bad, almost in a good way if that makes sense uh two big ones that i can think of um getting over it i don't know if you've seen this one where basically you're just you're, you're a guy basically yeah, like in a, in a tub and you just have a hammer and you have to swing to kind of propel yourself around a level it's basically it's a rage quitter that you will basically uh hate yourself and the other one is called <laughs> the other one is called co-op and this is basically you're trying to run with a with a character using only four keys on your keyboard, and it is rage inducing. So there, there are games like that that are bad, almost kind of on purpose, and can be entertaining and yes, rage inducing at the same time. Absolutely. So, but getting back to delays, yeah. So we were talking about good games that got delayed. So you made a great example, Rockstar. Uh, I wouldn't mind kind of touching upon Kickstarter. Mm. It's, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly of that one because there's been I think most games have been delayed that came out of Kickstarter right. and there have been some stinkers and there have been some ones that have really propelled yeah. one that immediately comes to mind on the stinker side would be the infamous mighty number no. nine yes did you get to play that that stinker joe i didn't uh, and i remember when we were doing youtube this is one that you were fairly high on if i remember correctly and uh you know, spiritual Who wasn't at the time spiritual successor done by the original creators of the game i, I mean it, Mega it, Man. It, it had all the the elements for success and then uh, yeah I, I heard nothing but bad things about it here's the thing with kickstarter joe is that Kickstarter is tricky. It's it's tricky, and it's right. gonna get this. I've seen this happen many times, for good and for for better, for worse. And I'm I'm bringing it back. Okay, on the opposite side, I'm gonna bring up Shovel Knight, yeah. which was a long delayed game, mm -hmm. and is still being finished to this day. Yeah. Many years later, they're finally putting out the final piece of DLC for it, which was been delayed into the stratosphere. Here's the thing. I'm noticing with Kickstarter is that when they start making all these Kickstarter goals and they start adding more and more to the game based on fan feedback, I think they bite off more than they can chew. Mm. I think that's what happened with Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which yes. actually turned out very good. I was a backer on that one and I'm very happy with the way that turned out, but it was massively delayed. Came out two or three years after it was supposed to. Thankfully lived up to expectations, but also had just way too much stuff crammed into it because the fans got involved. And I've seen this happen over and over. There's nothing wrong with trying to please your audience, but when you let people who aren't video game developers 
get involved in the creative process, mm -hmm. they don't know what they're going to ask for from time to time. They're going to ask for the moon. And then when these developers try to cram everything into it because their budget just keeps ballooning, that can almost work against the project. And the one thing to to keep in mind too, when it comes to Kickstarter, GoFundMe, uh, this kind of crowdsourcing, whoever is asking for that money could get all that money and just say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to take the money and I'm going to go. <coughs> Star Citizen. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I don't know if it's that, okay, I shouldn't be, I don't know if it's that nefarious, yeah. but you kind of just made me think about that, Joe. That that was one that I remember when we were talking about that on Joystick Justice League on our, our old YouTube channel, Mike, and, and it was one that, I mean, it had all the elements for success. You had uh, Chris Roberts, the guy who did the original Wing Commander games. If you're a PC gamer from back in the day like I was, those games were amazing, uh, great gameplay, great uh, full motion video, storytelling, and all that. And this guy was... Uh, involved with that i mean it had all the elements for success and it's just it's it's turning into the one of the biggest pieces of vaporware that just has never come to be 2011 we started talking about this thing yep it still hasn't finished 250 million dollars lawsuits corruption controversy is this thing ever going to come out or even ever live up to expectations hey i i Going back to what I said right at the top, Duke Nukem Forever. That was one that I had basically said that there was no chance in hell this game was ever going to come out. And that was, it just never should have. I mean, when you when you have in modern day a character throwing crap, literally throwing crap up against the wall for uh, for a joke, yeah, you might want to rethink things a little bit. Gearbox should have been just ashamed to put that out. But getting back Gearbox, to Star, getting Gearbox, back to Star Gearbox, Citizen, that's uh, that's one that just um, yeah, my expectations are non-existent at this point. I, I actually forgot about it over time. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, also think about delays. Strate delays can be strategic too, mm -hmm. right? So immediately, I'm thinking of Breath of the Wild. Mm -hmm. So that was supposed to come out back in 2015 when the Wii U was still, eh, I guess, a somewhat relevant system. You know, it was still kind of chugging along. But I think Nintendo at that point saw the writing on the wall, knowing that the Wii U was going to be their biggest flop ever. And thankfully decided to push that to coincide with the launch of the Switch. I think that was mm -hmm. one of the smartest things they did. And now, of course, Breath of the Wild is, is set to possibly be one of the best games of this generation. So, yes, delays can be strategic as well. And strategic delays, another one can be if they don't want to release on the same day as another big uh, game coming out. That's another one. They can shift things around. So, I mean, there have been numerous games that have come out. I remember even when um, uh, Rockstar Games, uh, L.A. Noir, when that first came out, there were actually a lot of things that came out at that same time. There was actually a midnight launch thing that I went to. I think it was NHL or one of these other big uh, AAA games, and L.A. Noir was just kind of silently kind of in there. And uh, one of the better games of that generation that got kind of largely ignored when it was released. But when I was there for that, everybody, I was I was literally the only one there to buy that game. Everybody else was there to get something else. Completely, another so. criminal example would be Titanfall 2. Yeah. 100%. That got, I can't believe EA basically butchered that release by putting it alongside battlefield mm -hmm. and their other big releases why that's that's that, honestly titanfall 2 is one of the best campaigns i played last generation and yeah. no and everybody slept on it because they were playing other big games they, they i don't know why they just left it there to die and that's happened a lot mm -hmm. where where it's just they they just get into that holiday season spirit they want to throw all their games together yeah. i mean there's so many other windows through throughout the year gamers play games all year long. So I, yep. and I, I hope that they'll do another Titanfall game to to make up for that mess. And probably one of the most anticipated games right now, it's set to be coming out for PlayStation 4, uh, Xbox One, and the PC. We're talking CG, CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077. That's set to come out in mid to late April, I believe. So that's one of those ones where they've been spending a hell of a lot of time uh, polishing it. They actually are consulting with the guy who actually created the original uh, cyberpunk was actually like a tabletop like a pen and paper was type of, uh, of game they, they actually been consulting with that guy he's been part of de the development of it when this actually this developer is in poland um so and they're also unique in this uh, industry that they are, are developing and they're also publishing their own game as well so they have direct control over what they want to put out which is very cool as well so what i'm looking forward to and if it ends up getting delayed a month or two i'm not going to be too upset about it because it's one of those ones where boy if they get it right it's going to be killer 
at this point, why not? We're so close to next gen. We're, we're, we're within a year now of PS5 and Project Scarlet coming out. Why not just make it one of the ultimate killer launch titles? Like, yeah. really just blow these new systems out the gate. Why not push Last of Us 2 out? Like, why is that coming out early, like, like mid-next year? Why not just mm-hmm. push that one out, too? Like, at this point... Give it a few extra months. There's so much stuff to play out there. Just just make the next generation launch as awesome as possible because, let's face it, the PS4 launch was terrible. Yeah. The PS3 launch was terrible. Yeah. The only good launch I think that PlayStation really ever had was, say, the PS2. See, and and I, maybe the PS1. See, and I want to agree with you on that, but I want to be able to play um, Cyberpunk on my the system. <laughs> I, have. I don't want to go buy another one for that. I got the Xbox One X. I don't want to go buy another one for a while yet. And I'm sure it'll be backwards compatible and up res by the I time next so. gen systems come out. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that game, especially with Keanu Reeves being in it. I think that's pretty badass. That was very cool when they announced that and he kind of came on the stage and said that he was going to be involved because he's actually a character in the game. So it's a very cool. Definitely looking forward to that one. Okay. So we're going to do our tech tip of the week here. And I thought this was, uh, I had to kind of think about this one for a little while. I, I kind of was drawn a blank for a little while. I was like, let's talk about. Home router and modem uh, tips here. This is something that uh, I think a lot of people kind of ignore, and there's some uh, key things here that I think will help people out a lot. Um, big one, where your modem or where your router is located, I think is very important. If you live on a multi-story home, um, you ideally want your modem to be on the ground floor, and ideally you want it to be in a fairly open space, and you want it to be about waist to midsection. Probably from like... Waist to shoulder height, probably the highest. So that the signal can properly get out to, to your whole home. And again, another one of these things, because some of these newer ones, like the one that I have with the two Rogers here, it does get fairly hot. So you don't want it to have it in a confined space. That's a big yep. one there. Yep. Um, I was actually looking up some, some tips as well uh, in terms of encryption. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something you want to take a look at for your security. Traditionally, a lot of routers use WEP security, which is very hackable, Mm -hmm. very old. When you go into your settings, you want to ensure that you're using WPA2 AES, which is a lot stronger. And also, you may want, like, if if you have a lot of people coming over your place using your Wi Fi and maybe you don't know everybody, you may want to consider adding guest access as well, where they can still share your signal and you even control how much of the signal they can use so they can't take everything from you, but they still can't access your files and your storage on your actual computer. It's just literally just you taking your signal. Another big one is this is when you got to dig a little bit deeper, and a lot of people probably aren't aware of this. Now, when your modem is getting off its signal, it's actually uh, giving out signal on multiple channels, and some channels are better than others. Uh, if you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of people that have Wi-Fi, it, it could be that there are a lot of people on that same channel, and they, they can get kind of congested. So there's actually some desktop apps, there's some mobile apps that you can actually scan your, your connection, and it can tell you kind of what the ideal channel is for you to possibly be on that has the, the widest range and uh, can connect to... Uh, probably most efficiently for you and then you can go into your settings and actually set it to that channel and you'll, you'll probably notice a pretty significant uh, improvement yeah they're called wi-fi analyzers yep. and most of your routers by default set automatically you can actually go check out the wi-fi analyzer see which is the least used signal and you actually go set that manually yourself yep. another thing is looking at your band Right, you have your five gigahertz band, your two point four gigahertz band, and it's really going to come down to what you want, right? So, for yep. example, five gigahertz, yes, it is faster, but you're also going to have to be closer to the router. So, you want to keep that in mind as to where you are situated in your home and mm-hmm. using that. Uh, we talked about guest networks. Uh, what else? Cust- if for the techie, this isn't my cup of tea, but mm-hmm. custom DNS servers. Yep. I'm still kind of afraid to take that plunge, but VPNs, at some point, yeah. I do want to start looking into that as well. Yep. Another basic one is just a, a housekeeping kind of thing. This will probably be, I think, the last kind of tip for this here. Um, I would say every month or so, just unplug the power on your modem. And, and reboot it. And it power just, cycle. And just kind of power cycle. And then it, uh, these th- things do tend to get kind of clogged up with some information. So you just kind of dump all that out of there and then start fresh. I'd say do it at least once a month. And specifically, this is from the Rogers technician that came to help me out. You have to do it in a specific order. And again, if I'm wrong about this, you want anybody wants to correct this. But you're actually supposed to pull the AC out of the unit first and then unplug. Apparently that helps you recycle it better, and you should be waiting at least like five minutes or so for it to fully flush, replug yep. it in, 
And there you go. And if I could add one more that I never even thought of until I was looking into this topic is that you can actually chain routers together. Yep. But you don't want to do it wirelessly where you're actually going to start sending less power to each device. You want to do it via cable. You could actually have like two routers connected via LAN cable and boost your signal that way as well. Yeah, if you've got a bigger um, home or whatnot, something like that could be good. When you started uh, extending the range too much with extenders and, and wireless, stuff like that, then the, the signal kind of degrades as you go out further. And another thing too, you mentioned the two signals with the, the 5 gigahertz and the, uh, the, the 2 gigahertz. Um, it really depends, I, I guess, uh, how close you plan on being to your router or how big your home is. Uh, the 5 gigahertz uh, signal is, is very, very strong, but it's very much kind of like what 5G is going to be. It's very strong, but over a fairly short range. Very close to it, exactly. So you've got to be probably within about 10 feet or so of your, uh, of your router before it starts to kind of degrade. Uh, the, the lower strength signal is actually... It actually gets out better. You get a better strength, but just the uh, the speed won't be quite as high. So there's right. a bit of a trade-off there. It really depends on how close you plan on being to that sucker. So, Absolutely. Okay, man. We're going to take a brief break here. We're going to come back with our final segment uh, for this week, our final bite segment. And this one is uh, probably one of the longest-running debates when it comes to just computers in general. So we'll be right back, guys. This is Big Joe from Turnbuckle Talk here, and you're listening to HTM Tech right here on the HTM Podcast Network. All right, guys, Big Joe and Mike back here on HTM Tech. So to kind of end things off here, Mike, our final bite segment, let's talk about not just desktop computers, but laptops. And we're talking about Windows versus Mac. This has been this battle so to speak, has been going on since both of these platforms have come out. You know, not just at the the user level, but at the company level too. Uh, of course, notoriously, you can go watch us all on YouTube. The uh, the Mac PC guy ads that um, that Steve Jobs is largely responsible for. There's a lot of uh, some good humor there and some jabs uh, at the old Windows platform there, but. Uh, it's one of those things where it really does depend on what type of user you are and what you plan on using your device for that I think uh, kind of will justify your purchase. Yeah, numbers don't tell the whole scenario here. And it's easy to get lost in market share and how many people use PCs versus Apple. But yep. like you said, it really depends on what you're going to use it for. This is going to tell uh, yep. a much bigger part of the story. So you start. Let's start with gaming uh, to begin with, since uh, you know we are gamers, we do talk quite a bit of gaming on uh, this uh, podcast here, Mike. When it comes to gaming on computers, the clear choice here is Windows. Absolutely, hundred percent. That's for, it. Like for a yeah, little bit ahead. of time, there uh, they they did finally release Steam on the Mac, and we did see a bit of a resurgence there slightly, but still the majority, I would say, probably. 75 to 90 percent of the games you can't play on the mac and then now this is actually something that uh you know from my experience here and anybody who has recently updated to mac os catalina you don't have any access any of the games that are running at 32-bit you can no longer play and then there are quite a few 64-bit ones that aren't supported by catalina as well so my library has actually and i i, I can actually uh, i'll kind of talk while i open up steam here and i can kind of give you guys a bit of an idea because i have had steam for a fair amount of time and i've have had it for a windows computer and i've had it for a mac for the mac one i have probably about waiting for it to come up here. I think it's probably about 10 games that are actually playable on the Mac. And I have a library of probably about 70 or so, if not a little bit more. And just the majority of them just either aren't supported or they just, I don't know if this is something that Steam was actively doing or if this was just Apple saying, screw you when it comes to the 32-bit stuff and in the gaming. But clearly the gaming platform is Windows. Yeah, for me, Joe, okay, well, here's the thing. So... I'm, I'm going to try not to talk about my ass. Like, I, I did use Macs fairly extensively for a couple of years in the late aughts. It would be the 2000s when I was teaching and I was having to use MacBook Pros at uh, my workshops. So I do have some familiarity with the, the laptops, but most of my life I've been a Windows user from the original Windows on, right? I'm currently using Windows 10 on my PC. That's what I've grown up on. That's what I'm comfortable with. I like the customizability. Uh, I'm not a big PC gamer because I'm sick of having to catch, keep up with, with the hardware, but that's going to get into my point here. 
from my vantage point, just uh, objectively, it seems to me that the fact that you can't easily upgrade Max and switch parts in and out, like graphic cards, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me on this, but it just seems because PC gaming is much more customizable, it can keep up with trends, with GPUs and RAM, and keep up with all the basic requirements of games where I don't think it was that easy with Mac. Am I, am I correct here? Yeah, uh, just uh, back briefly on uh, the Steam with my thing here. I actually got the numbers in front of me now. I own 166 games on Steam, and only 13 of them are playable on the the Mac that I have right now. So, huh, okay. So a large portion, I would say it's probably more than 90%. I'd have to actually do the math there to actually figure out the numbers. But yeah, um, when it comes to the upgradeability uh, of Macs, that's something that's really changed over, I would say, the last five years or so. Uh, very recently, these things do are very sealed up. To to do any kind of upgrade, uh, you can still upgrade uh, your RAM and you can upgrade the the hard drive to uh, to make it like a like a fusion drive, which is a combination of regular hard drive and the uh, the solid state, or you can just put a solid state drive in. But getting into especially the one that I have here, uh, it, it's quite the process, and uh, you know you gotta, you got to remove the screen uh, to get at things. So if that's something that and not just for Macs, if you really want to kind of do it yourself on your computer. One of the big sources I recommend to you, go onto YouTube and look up a channel called iFixit. They're probably one of the, the premier ones in the industry. They have repair manuals uh, done right down to the minute detail on how to take apart your device and how to properly repair it. So if that's something you want to do, yeah, check them out. Just uh, get a little plug for those guys. But I wouldn't say you're totally, like if you are a gamer and you are a Mac user, you're not yeah. totally dead in the water, but this is also going to go against the whole ideology of Mac being yeah. out of the box, boot camp. ready to go, user-friendly. You got it. Boot camp, boot camp right? Camp. So yeah. you can mimic Linux and Windows on your Mac and yeah. technically, what, run Steam? That's it. You can actually play games. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be up to full quality, but you can still get that experience, mm -hmm. but it's going to require some programming know-how, and I don't think that's for the average no. user. We're starting to get into like advanced users, but it's definitely there. I just don't think you're grandma's yeah. going to figure it out so when it comes to the mac stuff the the, the biggest uh reasons that i can recommend it to somebody is, is if you are uh, a content creator I, I i highly recommend especially when it comes to if you're a producer of podcasts or of music or of videos uh, final cut pro and logic pro are the standards in that's the it industry. the industry standard right there so and you can only get that on the macintosh platform so I, i've had an opportunity to use both of those um it, actually it's what i use to edit uh, our, our podcast that we do here so uh it's it's very robust and but yet simple and elegant at the same time so yeah, you know, it's yeah. funny. I, I knew this was going to be a Mac-focused one because I, I, even as a Windows user, I feel compelled to defend Mac because, yeah, <laughs> they always say oh, Windows is – like we always well, obviously know why PCs take the leading market share. Gaming, they're cheap. Mm -hmm. They're modifiable. Yep. They're much cheaper than Apple. But then there's also the argument. I always say you get what you pay for. And tell us more about the, the Apple tax, mm -hmm. that, that, that term. That's something that as we've kind of – time has kind of progressed here, uh, that's almost become a, a pretty level playing field too, especially with some of the Surface de devices, the Surface Studio and whatnot, they're getting up into the, that price range as well. So that um, side of the argument isn't necessarily um, accurate anymore. But what I would say in terms of data, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the whole idea is that with Mac, you ha it's a lot easier to turn off that data collection in the operating system yes. than it is with Windows, where it's basically Windows. default right there. Windows 10 especially. Before, yes. before I, I switched this thing, I was running a Windows 10 computer, and there was no easy way to turn any of that, you know, that stuff off. Uh, when, you're, when you even pull up your start menu, there'd be ads and stuff there. It just It was... It felt very intrusive, and I didn't really kind of know just how much they're kind of gathering about me and whatnot. So, um, whereas this, like, it just it feels. Um, I, I, I think the the one YouTube uh, video that I watched uh, with the uh, Linus Tech Tips there, I think he kind of worded the best that, yeah, we are paying technically a little bit more for this, but it, it feels like the, that part of it, like they they've done really well in kind of isolating us from a lot of the crap out there. Absolutely. So when, when you're saying when Surface and PCs are starting to catch up in price and yeah, they're yeah. looking sleek, but justify the price increase. Why? Why? I can understand. I, I totally now like, like my brother, he got me into PC, right? Mm -hmm. And now he even got an iMac just a few months ago and he's enjoying it. 
And I asked yeah. him what he likes about it, and he said it's it's you know it's it's the functionality, it's the accessibility, it's 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 ready to go, and it all ties in together. Joe, it's yes. the ecosystem. Yep. Number one, that's again what I'm so jealous of of Mac users is that that tight ecosystem, and it's just getting better. What's that new update that's coming out with Catalina, where now you can actually tap on your iWatch on, on yep. what's your Apple Watch to authenticate yourself instead of typing in passwords. Yep. Just brilliant little things like that that just make it again more intuitive, more fluid, less less room for mess ups. Yep, I even tested that just uh, before I got here with you. That's how I unlocked my. Well, computer. that's active now. Oh yeah, it, it okay. has actually has been for a little bit. And uh, when you um, look at the actual operating system of the Mac Two, what it's based off of is really interesting as opposed to Windows. It's based off probably one of the oldest operating systems that's out there when it comes to computers. I'm talking about Unix, which is what Linux is based off of, and what's what OS Ten or what Mac OS that they call it now is based off of. It's one of the most um, secure. It's one of the most uh, stable operating computer operating systems that's ever been in existence and that's what this platform is based off of it's all built it's off deep that foundation. for developers but it's it's secure it's stable yep. up for users right yep and you get and all the, within that you okay sorry go ahead and you get all the development tools included too like xcode it's not something you have to yes. pay extra for you can just install it and you can start developing your own apps right locally on your machine without doing any extra work obviously you got to know what you're doing but uh you know it, it's all there and it's easily accessible but xcode makes life very easy for developers because yes. It just works across all their platforms. You just have to do it right the first time. It's going to work across your phone, across your watch, across your desktop, across your laptop. It's just fluid, where it just seems a lot more disjointed in the PC universe. You need to know a lot more of what you're doing. But in a sense, again, just to defend Windows, yes. again, that's what I like about it. I, I like delving deep into the guts of a PC game, being able to modify, it, be able to replace the parts. And I'm, I will admit, I do like the price point, and there's a lot more applications. You know, so and I will say that like there's a lot more choice, although I will say more isn't always necessarily better either. Joe, as I'm starting to learn through my research of Mac, that sometimes all you just need is just a few awesome applications to really do what you have to do. Yep, and that, that's how when I went about uh, switching over again, you know, just kind of looking at at what this computer does and i just thought i just thought to myself you know what this computer does really well is what i needed to do and yep it was a little bit on the expensive side but it, it does what it does very well it does it very efficiently even since i've i bought this i've only had to restart this computer maybe once or twice as well when i did the update to catalina it only had that's the only other time i've had to restart this so that, that's been a big benefit there too can you tell me more about, okay, so they touched upon this in the Linus Tech Tips video too, Spotlight. Can you tell yes. me more about that? Because that really intrigued me when I heard about that. <laughs> That's just a quick way. Uh, you just do control space bar. And, or sorry, it's command space bar. Uh, I think I'm thinking control. I'm still thinking Windows uh, uh, stuff. And I have it up on my Easy screen right heretic. now. And uh, Spotlight search. And then you can basically search anything. That's, uh, if you want to find something quickly located on your locally on your device, just type it in uh, and you can pull it up. Uh, even basically do similar to like a web search if you want to almost start your kind of web search right there. It's just it's an easy, quick shortcut to just search for stuff and find it quickly. Yeah, uh, so maybe final, uh, maybe yeah. files okay. that you're having a hard to, maybe a, a file that you want to find and just bring up kind of quickly, which is very useful when it comes to me uh, when when I edit our podcast here. If I want to insert a clip or something like that that I have stored locally on the device, or even if I want to find it online, I'll just start typing on there and then I can quickly get to it. Yeah, I it's think it's a that's very powerful really awesome. tool. Yeah. Totally awesome. So yep. final verdict, Joe, I guess uh, PC for the budget-minded person, for the gamer. Yes, yes, absolutely. If you're a gamer, don't just steer clear of Mac. That's not going to do you any purpose. Yep. But like you're saying, creative people, especially in the music, the film industry, it's hard not to go for Mac. Yep. it's a, They've definitely... It's not without its issues as well. I mean, just like any other company currently out there, Apple is having some issues but when you just when you forget all the other noise and you just look at the platform itself and the, the hardware and the software, whatever it, what it does, it, it's a clear choice. I think especially if you're somebody that, like, like I said, likes to create content, uh, whether, like I said, video, music, podcast, uh, if you're a, a, a person who does photography, um, again, it's one of the best choices out there as well. So it's really done with that uh, in mind. Can I ask you one quick thing? This this just came up. I just remembered yeah. this now. They were also talking about the whole, the whole status symbol thing. Uh, Do you still think that applies? To a certain extent, yeah, I 
yeah, I could agree with that to a certain extent um, because you know, especially if you're, uh, like, well, of course, when you go to the uh, the fancy coffee shops uh, and whatnot, and you see the people working on there, and they don't have any more, but they used to have on the back of the laptops the little Apple signal in the part of that. Uh, because the uh, they would have kind of a backlight type of thing there, so the the Apple logo would actually kind of uh, be nice and bright. So yeah, there's a bit of that status symbol out there for it. I would definitely agree to a certain point. And hey, if you really like your product, why not show it off? Hundred percent. I mean, you're right. Like it, Microsoft is starting to take cues from that. Yeah, absolutely. We did talk about the Surface, yeah. the Duo, and and how it's starting to look more iPhone esque. Yep. But. It's kind of GoBots versus Transformers still, Joe. I mean, it's 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 really hard to to throw in the king, you know, who 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 started it all. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but uh, yeah, it's it's like Lego versus uh, what was the the, the blocks? Yes, uh, Mag, Mag, Mega blocks, Mega blocks. Yeah, it was like <laughs> right. If you didn't get Legos for Christmas, it'd be almost kind of disappointing. It's like, oh, I got I got that. Sega guys. Master System versus NES. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. there can only be one king. There it is. <laughs> Only right. one Ferrari. So there we go, Joe. So that's uh, that's it. It's really, it really all depends on what your primary use. Are you creative yep. or are you just kind of like a budget-minded gamer, everyday user? There's a solution for both, but I'd say there's also a lot of overlap. So in, in certain respects, either machine can do most day-to-day functions. It's just when you start to get to specific things, you really want to watch what you buy. The only one that I think that we kind of didn't mention that uh, is maybe quickly uh, worth making note of is uh, our Chromebooks. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that, um, that we kind of uh, people tend to kind of gloss over when it comes to comparing these platforms. And if you're somebody who does everything just kind of purely web-based and browser-based, it's a good, fairly expensive, fairly inexpensive uh, platform to use. I know a lot of schools uh, use Chromebooks and whatnot, so it does serve its purpose. But when it comes to really kind of getting some creative work actually done, it's really hard to beat a PC or Mac. Yeah. Yep, just just basically a Skynet node for for all you young and impressionable minds in schools. But that's a, another co- a topic altogether. <laughs> We've already gotten into that enough today. All right, man. Ah, Google. <laughs> yes, Google. Uh, it won't, touch me. We'll be talking a lot about them in uh, future episodes <laughs> for sure. Okay, man. Let's say enough this episode here as we have been now with some music. And uh, this is an interesting one this week. Uh, kind of keeping with the, the the Canadian theme here. Now, when it comes to Canadian music. When you want to talk about Canadian music, you can't not think of the Tragically Hip. Um, these guys have been around for a long time, up until very recently in 2017 when the lead singer Gordon Downey unfortunately uh, passed away from brain cancer. Um, when that happened, essentially, the whole country was kind of in mourning. It was almost like a... Felt almost kind of like a like our prime minister had uh, had kind of passed away. You know, he was somebody who was very widely respected, not just in the music business, but just in Canadian culture. And this band started up in 1984, uh, all the way to 2017, and released numerous numerous albums and accolades and awards coming at the yin yang here we're talking all the way back we're talking 1990 most promising group of the year uh canadian entertainer of the year group of the year multiple times numerous uh juno awards i'm sure there's probably some grammy awards in there as well i mean these guys have been around for a long long time and have put out a ton of good music so i think that uh, we'll end off our episode with i'm going really deep with this track and this is coming from the album going back to there they are uh, it's called trouble at the hen house this is from 1996 this was their one two three four five this was their sixth album and we're gonna do a little springtime in vienna and we'll see you guys on the next one later guys have a good one instructions from Could not have been much more plain. The blues are still required. The blues are still required again. As territory. 
Yeah.